Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Ether is the perfect drug for Las Vegas. In this town, they love a drunk. Fresh meat. Come on, buddy. So they put us through the turnstiles and turned us loose inside. Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome to another episode of Dose of Ether. This is your host, Lucian, and joining me again is our trusty co-host, Evan. What up, Evan? What's going on? Happy New Year. Happy New Year. How uh, have the holidays passed by for you? Uh, you know, it, it, uh, I've kind of had some down, down downers over the this holidays like nothing big but just like a bunch of little things that has not left me in the best of moods like one thing was my like two drops of water spilled on my mac and uh killed it uh and of course you know apple wants to charge like a thousand dollars to fix that stupid thing so i'm never buying a mac again so yeah those are my holidays how about you (laughs) (laughs) yeah mine um were rather uneventful traveled just to see family i didn't do anything for new year's and i think it was a good decision i feel like new year's is an excuse to get charged like double triple for the exact same concert you could see like two or three days before or after um it's i don't know why i used to think it was such a big thing that i had to do something on new year's (laughs) i was asleep at 11 p.m on new year's which i think is really a sign that i am getting old uh certainly didn't didn't used to be that way um but uh yeah i don't know like and and frankly like i normally go to bed like at one or two a.m um but i've been going to bed earlier recently and that night i was just sleepy and everybody was asleep so figured i'd go to sleep too (laughs) starting the new year with new healthy habits we'll see how long that lasts (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's funny. I yeah, I I quit caffeine in January of last year for like three weeks until I went to Aracon, which, I mean, I don't understand how you can cross oceans and not do caffeine and melatonin. I mean, it just like just doesn't seem possible to me. <laughs> <laughs> what conference did you go to? This was last year, Aracon. I was the MC, so I had to to go to berlin and i think it was like the 20th of january maybe it was a little later than that Um, because i don't think i quit caffeine until like the sixth or seventh anyway whatever so supposedly someone is paying you to quit caffeine through a betting website yeah we trust has this uh this their their latest product is uh like sort of an incentivized thing and at, at this point there is uh i think there's like three ETH, which i frankly assume mostly comes from we trust but um yeah three ETH for me to quit caffeine for 30 days so probably gonna have to do that we'll, we'll see well they just made their money back in free advertisement <laughs> maybe maybe <laughs> speaking of advertisements gitcoin grants is going on right now which is uh, there's this matching, um, but it's on a basically like an exponential curve. So um, 
I have a grant up there. So basically the idea is that, um, and there are podcasts that are up there too. So maybe we should put dose of, dose of either on there. Um, but the, basically the idea is that, um, if you, if you donate a dollar, it'll get ma matched at a much higher percent than if you donate a hundred dollars. So, um, and it, it all depends on whatever, but what everything else gets donated to. Um, but, you know, so to give that in slightly more concrete terms, like it might be that a hundred dollar donation would get match $50, but so 50%, but a $1 donation would get matched like $3. So 400% or whatever, you know, um, anyway, so though I, the weekend Ethereum has a, uh, a grant up there. So if you are inclined to go throw a dollar at me, it will, uh, It'll be appreciated. And the idea of the matching program is that um, both Consensus and the Ethereum Foundation, as well as Vitalik and Joseph Lubin personally, um, they're essentially contributing to the matching fund. And they've already given out over $800,000 in the previous two rounds. And the idea being that they want to um, essentially put a finger on the pulse of the community to know what is important for them to fund because eventually the community wants or should take over um, either responsibly funding projects that contribute to a common good. Um, and some of the projects and some of the funding that has uh, come out of it has produced things like Tornado Cash. I mean, Tornado Cash might have actually uh, been implemented anyways, but one of the matching fund programs have actually like produced the first zero-knowledge proof mixer for Ethereum. And certain projects like this, um, also I think the Mulok DAO was also um, one of the recipients as well of these matching grants. But the idea is that rather than simply like uh, organizations within the ethereum ecosystem fundraising for themselves through like an ico or forcing some economic incentive model to something that is fundamentally a public good like access to information uh, in the form of dose of ether or weak in ethereum um, or a mixer that doesn't have a token that might mess up its incentives um, these types of public goods need to be funded for the ecosystem to continuously evolve but at the same time it isn't necessarily like democratic or uh, in the ethos of the ecosystem to have things dictated right so it doesn't make sense if like some large organizations make the funding decisions for what gets implemented and what doesn't get implemented essentially and as a result, this is probably one of the leading examples of how to essentially gauge community support. And I've looked into the mechanism because my first thought was, well, I'll just spread my money over 100 addresses. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's a little bit more Sybil resistant in signing up for Gitcoin. Um, if you have a Gitcoin account, then it's really simple to contribute. Um, but if you don't have a Gitcoin account, you do have to link it to, I think, your GitHub account um, or another account that kind of 
ties you to some sort of identity. Um, yeah, and they, I think they only have GitHub these days, and there have been cases of people like definitely trying to spam their way into matching, and they're pretty easily caught, right? Like, um, yeah. It's of course, hard to it, fake it, years it, worth of code commits. <laughs> yeah. But everyone can tell when you've published code publicly on GitHub. It's, uh, D- it's a little... Don't little... go look at my GitHub account then. <laughs> <laughs> is, it, is it empty? Have you... Pretty much, pretty <laughs> much, yeah. I've, I've, I've had multiple GitHub accounts in my life. Don't get me wrong. Like the, the current one I'm using is... I mean, I'm not doing any coding these days at all, so... Um, and I was never really much of a software developer anyway. Yeah, I'm not sharing any of my code publicly, so it looks like I haven't done anything after a very intensive period of about six months. <laughs> do, do you not get the green square if you commit privately? Mm. Um, I don't commit privately to an organization that is connected to the public GitHub. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. And honestly, like, most of my code doesn't um, doesn't actually get seen by the public. It, that's part of uh, developing software for a private company, which I personally don't like. I think it's kind of a privilege to be able to uh, produce code and publish it open source. It's like being able to write um, to an open audience, like a personal blog versus writing an internal memo for a company. It just has a different kind of reward. Um, Some people find open source contributions to be a reward in and of itself, but the entire purpose of Gitcoin is so that people can find sustainable economic means to contribute to an open source community. Um, It's... It's ambitious, yeah. but it's a very difficult problem. <laughs> it's definitely one. I mean, the whole thing is definitely one of the things that drives Vitalik and the particular algorithm, which has some anti-collusion properties um, as well. Not just the incentivizing, you know, smaller donations. Um, uh, but anyway, the, the anti-collusion properties as well is like, you know, part of his algorithm. So um, he's, you know, quite motivated by it. Is quite excited by it, and in general, also, you know, it's a little yeah. bit of the Ethereum ethos, which is like try new things and see if we can, you know, like in some ways, uh, you could say that Ethereum is a public goods platform. So uh, we have to figure out like the public goods on our public goods. That is, it is infrastructure for you know the internet, right? So in the or at least the web in the in the long term is the idea. So. Um, yeah yeah he wrote he's a very good writer like very good at explaining uh, ideas clearly through text if you've only seen his presentations but haven't read any of his work I actually find his writing a lot more convincing than his presentation skills um, specifically regarding the work that he'd been doing on anti-collusion and um, the article that was most recent on Week in Ethereum, do you happen to have the name of it on hand? The, sorry, which one? His most recent article that he published for the Nakamoto. Ah, uh, uh, yeah. What was it called? Um, consistent neutrality? That's Credible not right. neutrality Credible as a guiding neutrality. principle. Yeah. 
I'll, yeah, that, uh, I'll link it in the show notes. It's actually like a very well-written article and it just shows you the amount of time that he's spent thinking about um, programmable incentives and it's uh, it's very well written and it's actually a very convincing piece on how essentially a blockchain platform is uh, can function as a public good if it maintains this concept of credible neutrality, which is provably not favoring any individuals, insiders in like an unfair um, or unrepresentative way. Um, and he basically talks about how successful blockchain projects can actually program credible neutrality into their systems. Um, one of the easy examples that come to mind is something like Uniswap, which you can essentially see the market making process unfold, but at the same time, the uh, the economic incentives are such that it balances itself out so that um, it makes it unprofitable to abuse the system, making people more likely to trust the outcomes and the trades that come as a result of it. I feel like we're getting into like a greatest hits of, of 2019 here. We've got, uh, yeah, we've talked briefly about Malak Dow. We've talked briefly about Uniswap, uh, Gitcoin's, you know, matching program as well. Mm -hmm. um, we should probably all, talk all, a little bit more about things. what Malak Dow is, although we mentioned it. Essentially, it's like the minimum viable Dow or decentralized autonomous organization. It's essentially the simplest version of coordinating economic incentives in which people contribute to a common project. And if the common vote essentially does something that you disagree with, you could rage quit by withdrawing your money before funding is actually dispersed to support a specific project. So it's a way to coordinate a group of people in such a way that your money is never really used in a way you disagree with, but it still is able to achieve a rough consensus through voting. Yeah. Is that like a fair yeah. simplification? Yeah, I think it's a fair simplification. Not even really much of a simplification. I think what is impressive about it is that they started small, like they had a very specific use case and they did that and it worked and they got people that went out and got customers. I mean, I mean, it's was a good salesman and, and is a is a great marketer i mean um like i'm personally really not a big fan of the name but like the 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 branding around a a, a near eastern uh god of child sacrifice ended up being like one of those things that makes uh makes that people remember it and to be fair like it's really about meditations on malak which is the slate star codex essay um not really as much about you know the child sacrifice god from 2000 years ago um but uh yeah but what's what's impressive about it is they got users and then a community built around it and then people are now you know building out extensions to it so you know you have people using it like for metacartel for orochi which is like events an events DAO. i mean it, those are both along the lines of moloch in that they are doing grants but now it's getting extended into for-profit ventures so now basically they're doing the dow from you know the famous 2016 august 2016 that blew up and caused the dow fork 
um, which spawned, you know, things like Ethereum Classic. Um, but yeah, it's uh, they've got users and they've got people extending it and getting it to do, you know, what they wanted to do. And it's definitely like a success story of, of 2019 because, you know, they went small and like found a, a, a need and they built that and then they extended from there instead of people that try to make a lot of assumptions and, you know, overbuild and overengineer things because they can rather than because people want to use it. Yeah, that makes sense. It's simplicity is probably the easiest aspect about it. Um, it doesn't it's, have that much can... functionality, but that's the whole point. Yeah, yeah, and that gets added later. I mean, you could say the same thing about Uniswap, right? Like another one of the big success stories of 2019. It's a, it's a simple. It started simple, um, and it is you know grown from there. And they're going to launch V2 soon. And um, and the interesting thing about Uniswap is that it might, in some ways, end up also solving one of one of the Oracle problems because. Uh, you know, one of the things people use oracles the most for right now is putting fiat asset price, uh, prices on chain, right? So like for DAI, Maker has to put an oracle on chain of how much, you know, how many dollars ETH is worth at, you know, every block. Um, whereas with with like Uniswap, like it, it is a price oracle, right? Because it has the price right there. Um, now is that use for ready for use in production right now like probably not because it's manipulatable until it gets deep enough but um it's still like an interesting uh like as it gets bigger it becomes more useful as an oracle yeah i, I see that as start well. small go big afterwards <laughs> and um we are kind of doing like a great greatest hits of 2000 <laughs> Yeah, it uh, turned into that this as well. Yeah, you talked about tornado is is as well, right? We uh, haven't that's... gone in depth into it yet, but there has been an update regarding tornado cash. Uh, tornado cash is a, a zero knowledge proof based mixer that is running on Ethereum, and it's a very much a privacy forward uh, based application um, that's live and it's up right now. They've recently added support for multiple types of tokens outside of just ETH. Originally, when it was launched, it was launched with um, only Ethereum and only 0.1 Ether as the unit. Because um, you have distinct, like, you get, let's call them deposit slips. <laughs> so you deposit into this mixer and you wait and you wait and you have other people who deposit into the mixer as well and um, essentially it tells you what the anonymity set is right now for 0.1 ETH um, it is 1,322 equal user deposits so after you deposit you should wait a certain amount of time so that like the anonymity set is relevant because if you just deposit and then withdraw immediately then you can kind of guess whose uh, whose address uh, those two addresses are linked um, but essentially you get a receipt back 
which is essentially the output of a zero-knowledge proof, which proves and can prove on-chain that you have deposited a certain amount of Ether. So you could deposit into a contract and then withdraw from a different contract. And they've also solved one of the more difficult problems regarding this, in which it actually uses uh, the gas station network to pay for the fees of deposit of withdrawing. So you can start with a fresh address that doesn't have any ether on it, and you can still use their contract, which uses the gas station network to essentially pay your fees for you with your deposit. So that your your personal ether never actually is used or connected at all to the new address that is loaded up with funds. Yeah, it's, I, I mean, and back up for a second, like why this is important, because it is crazy how much privacy you give away just by doing one transaction on chain right now, right? So um, it's like pre before this mixer, you basically, the only way you had any sort of privacy so that somebody didn't know every transaction you'd ever done and, and, and how much ether you had uh, was to basically like you know send it to an exchange and then send it out to a new address well that you know that means that nation states and you know kyc and and you know centralized databases they know everything about you so that's not really like the spirit of this space um but you know in practice like i i know people even at like in at crypto conferences you know, everybody is drawn into crypto for, for different reasons. And some people are pretty hardcore privacy nuts, right? Like, and I say nuts in an affectionate manner. Don't get me wrong. Some people think I'm one. Um, like, and they, frankly, they just didn't want to send you, you know, 20 die that they owed you um, because they didn't want to give away their entire transaction history, right? So this is a, a massive, massive improvement in in privacy which was so so needed uh, i would say also that like even if you even if you aren't planning on on using it like it is it is a little bit like a public good in that like putting putting your like putting an eth or 0.1 eth or whatever into the the pool and leaving it there is makes everybody else more private. So if you are the sort of person that likes to do good things that don't cost you anything, that is something that you could consider doing. And uh, you said like deposit slip. I think the term most people use is note, which is, you know, it's it's just a, a string of, of text. So a long line of, of text that you have to keep. And that is how you get your ETH back out, a password, basically. So, the, I mean, that is basically your entire risk for for doing this good deed of making everybody more private. Um, I'm, I actually, I'm, I'm on the site right now, and it's sort of interesting. You know, you said there's like 1,300 uh, deposits in the, the, the term is anonymity set for 0.1 ETH. And then it goes down to 183 for, for 1 ETH. And then it goes up for 10 ETH, which I think is kind of interesting that there's actually more of uh, more people have put in for, for 10 ETH than, than 1 ETH. And then 100 ETH, there's only, only 40. Of course, that's, that's a lot of money. 
uh, and this is somewhat beta beta software as the, it has a, a warning at the top. Um, right. Which, and people are still I, putting tens of thousands of dollars in single deposit slips. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I would say like the, the, uh, you know, what I said about like putting money in is, is a good deed because it makes everybody more anonymous, everybody more private. If you actually, there is DAI, there's ETH, there's CDI, there's USDC, there's CUSD, and there is Tether, USDT. Yeah. If you actually go outside of, of ETH, the, the second one with the most quote unquote anonymity set, or you could think of it as liquidity, I suppose, too, is DAI. But after that, it, it goes downhill pretty fast in terms of how many, um, uh, what kind of, like how many people have put their their to put, put their money into it like for example they have usdc which is actually something yeah. i thought was fascinating so usdc is the coinbase stable coin there's only one user who deposited 13 days ago and yeah, they deposited so that person the isn't getting any deposit any, any anonymity and i mean they're absolutely right because coinbase actually started locking up um withdrawals from certain accounts because they realized that the they were withdrawing to a wasabi bitcoin wallet which was known for having a mixer built into it right that raises a lot of questions. First of all, how do they know that the address corresponds to a specific type of wallet that's known for mixing? But <laughs> it just shows you how private um, some of these things are. But the second thing is like, that's a big risk. Having your phone. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Like the possibility that somebody decides to like lock your account because of this. I actually um, am very conscious about it. I'm very conscious about it. So any money that I don't plan on spending as crypto, I'm a little cautious to actually put into a mixer. Um, I mean, some, some of the money that I actually have in Ethereum, I actually don't intend on withdrawing ever because I'm uh, planning on being a validator. So... Um, setting up like a validator node and all of that stuff like i'd be more than happy to essentially put that through a mixer because then i can essentially get the newly minted coins and if i ever do decide to sell any ether it would be out of that but right it is fundamentally a question of uh whether exchanges will treat or discriminate against this there's always been the question of whether or not coins that have been used for illicit purposes will be tracked forever and will be quote tainted coins um and there's always the question of whether there's a premium on newly minted um ether this is mostly bitcoin because bitcoin is still dominant on dark web uh websites uh but the question is is like do people buy newly minted uh, Bitcoin at a higher price than previously transacted Bitcoin because it's less likely to be tainted quote in a investigation or like tainted in um, in potentially some nefarious reason. For example, if you ever have Bitcoin that was used for a high profile cyber attack transferred into your account for whatever reason, right. and then yeah, you try yeah. withdrawing it from a U.S. exchange, 
you're going to have a bad time. <laughs> so that's actually a funny thing to me. It's always been sort of amusing to me that somebody, people haven't like, if you, if you had like hacked an exchange or something, wouldn't you then try to, you probably think I'm about to say like use a mixer. That's not what I'm going to say. I'm going to say, wouldn't you then try to like basically like blackmail like legit people that you don't know into paying you money so that you don't send them like this tainted Bitcoin or ether or crypto or whatever you know it is. I mean, mm -hmm. you can sign a message on Ethereum and send that message over. So, you know, so, like the DAO hacker, if he has that private, he or she has that private key, they could very easily like, you know, send you this, send you this thing that you could verify like the, verify the message saying i am the dow hacker i'm about to transfer an ether to your account like if you, if you don't want me to do this you have to send an eth to some you know to this fresh account like frankly wouldn't people do that like i would probably do that i mean maybe not an eth but like if it were like ten dollars um doesn't that's, seem so it's ridiculous really funny that you use the dow hack address because uh someone actually openly signaled in a coin vote using that address and it was an ethereum insider can you guess who it was no nick johnson actually uh, oh oh yeah i remember that yeah i know i remember what you're talking about yeah the so, uh the white hat group thing yeah yeah he had the private key he had the private key for the dow hack um like address essentially he, he, yeah, so th there's a little bit more to that story, which is that, um, uh, hold on, give me a second to process what, the, the, the um, what do we call those coin votes? What do we normally call them? There's a term, uh, um, carbon votes? A, yeah, essentially. It, it's it's yeah. a vote that's weighted based on like various things. Let's say your vote is weighted by how much ether you have in that address or in this case your vote is weighed by how much ether you have in administration in contracts under that address well right? no it was even different than that it was that that's why that's why nick did it is because it was it was whoever deployed so i think so the specific term the specific event we're talking about which we should probably give context on is that edgeware did a lock drop um, which was Edgeware was promoted as the premier Polkadot um, smart contract platform. They have since had some issues. Um, and and uh, I don't even know if the project is alive, to be honest with you. Like it, they tried to launch and failed like two or three months ago. And I don't know what happened from there. Anyway, enough of, enough about Polkadot. But they did this lock drop where you could lock your ether for a certain period of time, and in return, you would get some edgeware, which you would get when they launched, assuming that they launched, which they didn't. Um, but they, but because they wanted the 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 polka dot, the frozen polka dots, frozen ether, because they like in some ways this was like a backdoor like um, recovery fork, right? Like right. they were allowing parity. They were allowing the address that deployed the contract. So, as in Parity, the, the Parity's multi-sig contract was frozen, 
but right. the address that deployed the contract was not. So Parity could still, or sorry, Polkadot could still get the, could still lock all of their frozen ether up basically. Um, and that's why Nick took the white hat group, like the, the, the private key that deployed the white hat group and voted with that hmm. and then destroyed it. He was, uh, technically he signaled, um, it wasn't right. actually the carbon voting, but, um, <laughs> Like, cause they had a thing where you could signal if you didn't trust their code, um, which right. did end up having a bug in it. <laughs> yeah. Um, Surprise. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a, it's a shame, you know, if, given that it was linked to Polkadot, you would have thought they would have done more than one audit, but they didn't. Anyway, um, a white hat found it. And so nobody lost, lost money, but uh, yeah. Anyway, that's the, the story there. To go back to Tornado Cash, um, I was going to say, and to be fair, I do have an interest in Nex Nexus Mutual, as in I own some of the tokens, which I won't try to explain all of that. But you Wait. can insure you can insure away your like your risk of using Tornado Cash by by doing Nexus Mutual. Now the downside is, in order to um, in order to join Nexus Mutual, you have to KYC yourself because it is an actual legal entity in the UK. Like it's mm -hmm. basically an insurance company, but it's not allowed to use insurance because it's a mutual. Like that's the regulatory structure of the UK for mutuals. Um, but then if you do that or get somebody to do it for you who has done the KYC, then say you did 10 ETH into Tornado, you could. Uh, you could in, you could buy coverage on 10 ETH on Nexus Mutual, and then you would always be covered, right? So you could do 10 ETH, and then as long as there was no bug, you'd take your 10 ETH out, and then you put another 10 ETH in. Um, so fairly fairly inexpensive way to insure away some of the risk to Tornado Cash. Now, we uh, definitely have some uh, listeners and contributors on the Slack that... Um, have been very interested in the possibility of smart contract based insurance programs and i think there is definitely like a lot of unexplored space on that intersection especially because you have this level of transparency even if you don't actually have transparency within tornado cash you can essentially have transparency on the functioning of the system and yeah. um yeah that It'd be interesting I, to see if like extra external blockchain risk like Coinbase no longer uh, accepting your withdrawals um, because you used a mixer, if that is something that you could realistically insure for. Um, yeah, it, it would definitely be no, nice no. to have some kind of like countervailing force against uh, the arbitrary powers of centralized exchanges, but it's that's a tough one <laughs> yeah it's not really their fault though i mean it's just government's gonna government right i mean mm -hmm. they have to keep their their banking partner which is dependent on the government so um yeah i'm i was gonna say i'm quite bullish on insurance overall you know nexus mutual originally hugh's idea was to do earthquake insurance so um basically there are you know, there are certain things in the world that you're really hard to buy insurance for, but there are people that would, you know, would buy insurance for it. 
Um, but for whatever reason, in insurance companies don't don't offer a product. And so the idea was basically parametric insurance. So you could insure, you know, up to a certain amount of things and based on um, seismic data, you know, if, if like a, if a, you know, a Richter scale event of over a certain amount, amount happened, then you would get a payout. Um, it, he, he pivoted to, you know, doing basically smart contract which is a term I hate, but solidity code, EVM code, um, uh, insurance, like you know, coverage. Um, and I think, I mean, it was a smart move because people that are willing to do key management are people already in crypto, right? But long-term, I definitely think that, you know, the next, the next wave of people that are willing to do key management and adopt crypto are the sort of people that find risks like earthquake insurance that they can't insure away. And that makes a, a ton of sense to me. And I think we've already seen some some things like rain insurance in like Sri Lanka and whatnot, where um, that Etherisk is doing. Um, I, and I guess Puerto Rico, they're like Etherisk also, somebody's building on them uh, for hurricane insurance in Puerto Rico. And that is, you know, it's one of those things that makes sense, right? Like you would, if you have a burning need for insurance in a situation like that, where you can't buy insurance, You'll figure out how to do your how to manage your private key yeah and i mean soon californians aren't going to be able to buy fire insurance are you serious yeah oh well unless there's like so flooding insurance is different than all other types of insurance because uh flood insurance is actually a public private partnership that uh caps the total liability of insurance companies so their insurance companies are more like administrators of insurance policies while the government is the ultimate bearer of risk um, they're eventually going to have to do something similar to fire insurance because major um, insurance providers are withdrawing from providing fire insurance in california after this season it's a, it's a little tragic, but I could see that happening to Australia as well. And I mean, almost any natural disaster based insurance, I can't imagine like, yeah, it's going to be kind of messed up because uh, without state intervention, it's going to be unlikely that there's going to be any private insurance markets for anything related to natural disasters. Um, yeah, that would be kind of tragic. <laughs> I, I mean, the, yeah, I mean, personally, I would like to see, like, that's another reason I would really like to see insurance happen on, on chain is, um, I mean, insurance companies suck, um, you know, like, yeah, I would we never talk briefly about one. it. <laughs> yeah, we talked briefly about it before the show, but um, I mean, I, just the obvious, like, misaligned incentives, right, where they you they you pay them money and then they try to screw you uh, if 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 you ever deserve to get money from them um and because of that they're super regulated by the government but the government is like is Easily actually if you think well <laughs> not even that like i mean sure like politicians are politicians but like if you actually think about like the american federal government like think about what it actually is it's an insurance company like Right. It's an insurance company with nuclear weapons. I mean, and actually even like things like, so the, 
they bailed out like uh, you know after 9/11 the 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 federal government bailed out a whole bunch of people like um, well New York got a whole bunch of bailout money but like airlines in particular got a whole bunch of of of, of bailout money for like it was basically like ex post insurance like they hadn't insured it away for these things they hadn't tried and then the government just went and bailed them out which is mm-hmm. like I mean it's bad enough that if there's all these like really poorly designed insurance programs which again if you like depending on how you count it you can say that like more than 50% of the federal budget is insurance programs like social security is essentially insurance um welfare is essentially insurance um you know it's going going on down the line fema is anyway. obviously insurance it's a, it, at least it's explicit though like if it's a federally declared emergency then um, the federal government essentially steps in to subsidize the costs of rebuilding and repairing. Um, yeah, and by the I, way, I the, it's mean, also yeah. super, super inefficient. I mean, so I, I live in Texas and, and Houston had a bunch of floods two years ago. You might have seen it on the news. I mean, we have soil that doesn't absorb water and something like 70 inches of water got dumped on Houston in like two days. I mean, like truly crazy, like any area would have would have flooded, but because we have bad soil, like the flooding was even a million times worse. I mean, literally like, you know, 20 feet of water in some areas of the city, uh, the dams, which are like massive, massive, they overflowed. But the whole point of this is that um, the, the Houston city government basically um, literally builds houses in the reservoirs because they are... Um, I mean, it's, you know, depending on how you term corruption, but I mean, property developers basically pay city councilmen, well, basically the mayor, to be honest with you, but uh, to issue building permits and they literally build houses in the reservoir, which is absolutely insane, obviously. And then these things flood out and we literally have like houses that get flooded out every year. And by the way, do you know who pays for them? The government, the federal government comes in and like literally pays out like $200,000 for a $200,000 house every year. And there's like hundreds of houses like this in Houston. So yeah, insurance, such a mess. Let's do it on chain. Sorry, ran over. No, no, I mean, it makes sense. And it's um, the nuance of it and getting the incentives right comes back to the idea of, um, what's it called? Credible neutrality in the sense, you know? Like, if everyone can expect, like, if their home is flooded, then they can be insured as long as they don't build within a floodplain, then yeah, sure, like, that sounds like a credible thing. But the most straightforward processes don't function like this. They end up going through complicated institutions with varying interests, and it's never as simple as it sounds especially when money's involved especially when other people's money is involved then you throw in yeah, politics that... into the mix and yeah. then it's a nightmare right so i'm 100 percent with you throw it on chain provable um provable like prove that the process is treated fairly and uniformly for people and then they'll understand like yes people were in a disaster and i also think that one of the main problems because state-run insurance programs sometimes can be run more efficiently than private-run insurance systems 
For example, as I said, flooding insurance, like you need flooding insurance. However, the private sector simply refuses to do it. So you end up getting put into this weird kind of dynamic in which if you let the state do it, it's going to be done poorly and inefficiently because everyone's spending other people's money. If you let the private sector do it, they'll only do it where it's profitable, which leaves out entire segments of the population and entire groups. And there's, there, oh, there's always going to be a catch, right? If you let the private sector do it, those, there's, they always have to make money off of it. And in certain uh, circumstances, like forest fires in California, all of a sudden you have people who used to be profitable now completely withdrawing from the market, yet you still have people who live in California. And then you come to this glaring need, in my opinion, to introduce technology in such a way that it could actually benefit um, and do it differently as opposed to trying to do the exact same tried uh, and failed processes because none of these things are permanent, fully-fledged solutions. And adding technology is only going to make it more complicated, in my opinion, but it could definitely achieve certain things that um, haven't been possible before. It's a process. I mean, new new technology. It's going to be complicated, but hopefully, in the long run, it won't be complicated. You know, and the people <laughs> that need it the most, you know, will be most motivated. Yeah, yeah. I, I wanted and... to make it slightly more positive what you said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a change that it's um, inevitable. Either we do it by exploring forward-thinking technology, or we get forced into it by being put into a situation that's completely unsustainable financially or socially and i mean i know which version of the future i'd prefer and i know which one i'm working towards so we also wanted to talk about uh, the recent filecoin launch and filecoin is an interesting project because they raised over like $300 million during the peak of the bull run. Um, but they've also produced some actual usable code, which a lot of people within the Ethereum space have incorporated into their products. Um, this is where I'm talking about IPFS, right? IPFS, you could host by yourself and run, and you could have, quote, decentralized storage but you are essentially managing it and hosting it yourself filecoin was supposed to be the incentive mechanism to encourage and create a cryptocurrency that uh, pays for people to host your data for you um, is that a good explanation evan yeah that seems like a pretty good explanation and i think like why it's important is because if you think about the things that run on Ethereum right now, they have these front ends, as in the websites, the websites that, that you use to interact with the back end, which is Ethereum, like the, the database. And, you know, going to a, a website is not decentralized. It is, you're relying a lot of decentralized things in there, including like DNS and certificate authorities for HTTPS, whatever, HTTPS. Um, and so there are things in there that get hacked and thus make it less less trustless. So 
having a storage layer so that people can put front ends like websites that are decentralized up is, is really important to the long-term web three vision. You could also host pictures and a really cool aspect about IPFS is that it, it the content itself leads to a specific address, right? So if you change a single pic pixel on a picture, it gets a completely different address. So the content of the site is directly connected to the actual address, right? So um, it's an actual interesting innovation that's been very useful. And it's a good way to think of like a hash of an item is also its location within this distributed storage network with a slight layer of abstraction above that. So yeah. Filecoin has been the incentivization mechanism. And the idea is how do you pay someone for hosting your data for you? Mainly because it's so difficult to prove that someone has open data, right? Like it's not trivial to say, I have five petabytes of open data on my computer. Why? Because I told my computer to tell you that. <laughs> Instead, you actually need an algorithm that creates a, uh, a provable certificate that you do have certain amount of data provided and accessible to the network. So Filecoin was essentially an incentive mechanism that wanted to do a proof of stake consensus mechanism weighted by how much um, data you've made available to the network, not necessarily how much data is uh, being used out of the data you've been make, uh, you've made available, but how much data you've made available for the network and to do proof of stake mining weighted based on how much data you've provided to the network. And obviously that's a complicated thing. So after they shipped IPFS, um, they have been working on Filecoin and Filecoin has recently come out in a testnet and you could now join the testnet and you could mine. And that's great, a blockchain project shipped and delivered now we could all go home and an ipo was successful the end hooray <laughs> psych <laughs> <laughs> uh, i know there's a butt coming here so, so give it to me okay so there are certain hardware requirements and these hardware requirements are let's just say excessive actually they're the hardware requirements i'm just going to go through the list and read them to you you need an eight core processor you need a okay. hundred at least 112 gigabytes ssd and okay 128 gigabytes of ram <laughs> so you need more ram than you need hard drive space not quite not quite because it's uh, like a four to one ratio. Oh, sorry. It's megabytes versus gigabytes. Okay. Sorry. No, 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 no. You need 128 gigabytes of RAM. Gigabytes. So, yes, yeah, so you need more. So, the minimum is, is higher for RAM than for disk space. You need uh, 512 gigabytes SSD. 
Or uh, okay. uh, so you could actually still, still use uh, H, uh, HDD. So you could still use a spinning disk drive, but okay. it needs to be at least 512 gigabytes. So and what, uh, on top of it, so the, you actually need an NVIDIA graphics card. On top like of all of that. Like a recent one? Like another $1,000? Well, the way they put it is that you need... If you don't have a good enough graphics card or enough RAM, then you can't actually claim your block reward because you can't actually generate the proof after having been selected in the proof of stake circuit to actually get your reward and your. It's points. like some zero knowledge thing, like in it order is. to claim your thing, and so yes. you only have a limited amount of time. Okay, I was going to say, what do you need? All like, why is that ridiculous requirements? Uh, because you are proving, and I kid you not, so this you, is what it's called. You are proving space time. Yeah, yeah. That you have um, a certain amount of space made available for a certain amount of time, and that's the crux of its consensus mechanism have you right. priced out like what this would be on i forget what the sites are that people use but like part picker or something like i mean we're no, talking like at least but, like six thousand dollars i was saying yeah at, probably at least five to six thousand dollars like i haven't built a machine from parts recently but i gotta think that that is i mean that's a lot of money um, I have built a machine very recently, and 128 gigs of RAM is a ridiculously large amount of RAM. Like that yeah, alone so you got is a, several thousand yeah. dollars worth. And yeah, yeah. also, an eight-core CPU is pretty high end too. But granted, some of these aren't necessarily minimum requirements. These are the lowest requirements that they've tried they've tested the test net for right because obviously they recommend people serve more than 512 gigabytes of disk storage sure right? yeah yeah right and they also recommend that the storage have a fast read speed so that you could actually respond to the queries and actually get some of the mining rewards but these are much, much higher than I would have ever imagined for so, yeah. a distributed storage mining setup. Like this, I mean, it makes a... sense because of the the snarky stuff, but yeah, I mean, that's pretty crazy. It's, and that's actually the real reason why, because at the crux of this design is a snark output of proofs for efficient on-chain submission, right? So the consensus mechanism, and I'm actually like fascinated about what kind of snark proof that they have. There is a um, Zero Knowledge podcast episode with a former uh, Zcash founding scientist who went to work on this specific snark design. Um, I could link in the show notes. I didn't fully understand how it works i find it fascinating um but essentially the theory of it is i mean you're a total idiot if you don't understand everything about zero knowledge right like, come on man you have to you have to understand <laughs> both proof of replication and proof of space time as well as zero knowledge circuit designs for proving available storage and the fact that things are actually being stored man and the weirdest thing is that like none of these 
aspects actually contribute to the storage, right? The most expensive right. yeah, yeah. part of the build, like a 512 gigabyte um, like of disk storage, you can get that in um, M.2 SSD NVMe, like brand new for less than $100, yeah. right? I mean, so, that's the crazy thing is like if you're building your own like I mean, I guess nobody is going to build this at home. Like you would have to, I don't even know what the scale is and what you would have to do it. Because if you're going to build all that machine to do it, you're going to have to have how many, how many terabytes of, of hard drive space in order to make it economically economical. feasible to yeah, recover I, that I, upfront cost. Um, a lot. <laughs> that's, that's kind of the ridiculous thing, like a massive amount. And so second question, like how much would this cost? Well, maybe before I even get there, like how, I was going to say how much would this cost on like AWS or Azure or Google, but like, could you even do it even close to economically in the cloud? I'm not even sure that you could. Um, very large computers with a lot of RAM um, are used commonly by people who urgently need uh, calculations for like generally computers with 128 gigabytes of ram are essentially doing calculations either calculations that absolutely cannot be parallelizable and you need to keep the entire data structure in memory but you're talking about like machine learning algorithms with yeah, massive yeah. scale you're talking about like weather prediction data you're talking about calculations that are done on supercomputers essentially but that's probably the pricing tier that you would be looking for in AWS. Yeah, I right. guess I guess my question is not like, can you do it? It's more like, uh, is there any like preset option that is even like gets you <laughs> there see. without being like so absurd? I guess you know, like, um, yeah, uh, I, yeah. I mean, like the the fact that you have to have like a GPU and 128 of RAM plus an a core is i mean i don't know it's kind of crazy it, it, it reminds me of solana actually um because uh you know solana is doing this um instead of doing sharding they're basically the anti-sharding scaling solution that's like their their marketing i think they're supposed to go live fairly soon but basically they they just figured out a way to like you know like they every like crazy little optimization you could do on one chain um, instead of ever doing shards because they're very anti-sharding. Well, no, that sounds good, but like the, the only way that makes any sense whatsoever is that you make people buy servers. I mean, it's the same thing as this. You make them buy, you know, $10,000 machines or something along those lines. Maybe it's six, I don't know, but um it's a it's an insane it's an insane thing that is not like a somebody can GPU mine as a as a hobbyist and, and and keep up like the way they sort of can on you know Ethereum right now. Hmm. Yeah, it's I you know it, it one of the how decentralized are you really when you're like doing this stuff? You know, I mean, Bitcoin wouldn't even go to two megabytes a block because they. I mean, the the stated reason was that they wanted it to be feasible for people that don't have great internet connections. And to right. be fair, I actually went out to Boise and they were 
they were pretty against the two two megabyte for blocking Bitcoin too, because uh, they ha- apparently it's like fairly common out there because they're in the middle of nowhere. They're, it's like the the city that is farthest away from any other city in the continental U.S. Basically, um, but they have like apparently it's normal to have a, a bandwidth gap cap per month. So they were in favor of this, you know, one one megabyte blocks for that because two megabytes would make it impossible for them to keep up. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's definitely against the ethos of the space is where I'm going with that, TLDR. I, I looked up essentially how much it would cost to get 128 gigabytes worth of RAM, and it's about $600. Um, yeah. So $600, $1,000 GPU, $500 CPU, um, and that's all overhead before you actually connect any of the mining equipment. Is that actually true that it's only six hundred dollars? Because at that point, when you're acquiring, yeah. but you're acquiring that much RAM, but you've got to also be able to plug it into your motherboard, right? That's true. Like, so, but so, you basically do need a brand new like motherboard, which it has uh, eight PCI Express lanes. Um, okay. And like, I. <laughs> so you can still buy the sixteen. No, you can't even buy the sixteen. No, you have to buy. Uh, buy the thirty-two. Yeah. Okay, so you you priced four thirty two is what you're saying. Yep. Okay. Well. And okay, like it exists. <laughs> so it exists. It's possible. It's just that. That's I still a three thousand dollar machine. I don't more. think there I mean, exists a computer that's more than a year old. That has and like. Even if you've built a computer in the last year, you have to get a top-of-the-line CPU, like literally the most expensive uh, commercial-grade CPUs. Like that's just the limit. And then on top of that, you have to basically like max out the RAM like entirely. <laughs> then you have to throw in an NVIDIA GPU. So yes, technically there are like way overkill gaming computers. Um, that could run this but the weirdest thing is like none of these actually contribute to the storage and retrieval of data this is all just overhead on top of it's a hard problem i mean (laughs) yeah and the crazy thing is like i've never heard of a computer with like 128 gigs of ram a year ago like I don't think it would have even been possible. <laughs> Didn't you actually tell me that it might actually they might have higher requirements for mainnet too? Yes, I skipped over that. <laughs> yeah, these are actually you, nerfed you just, requirements. You just broke up there. Maybe maybe I did. I don't know. But um, I I missed what you said. So, they actually have higher requirements. Um Quote, as we continue to fine-tune our proofs parameters, we expect mainnet circuits to require more computational power than testnet circuits. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) With circuits referring to, I'm assuming, the zero-knowledge proof circuits, um, which are, uh, this is actually related uh, and calculated on the GPU. So you will need an even beefier GPU than what you're using now. And 
Right. There, there is one catch, and it says if you're worried, uh, if you're a small miner worried about the cost of GPUs, rest assured, we're working to enable miners to securely outsource snark computation to third service providers. Third party service providers. So, I... in essence, on top of. So I pay somebody to like I give them the data in order for them to prove. I don't know how that would work, but I guess I don't really right. understand the architecture. Essentially, you could offload the compute or the compute resources, right? So right. if you if you get selected for a proof of stake, then you could have someone else run the GPU calculation. There are GPU cloud providers now, um, but. It's just really strange that you have such a large, complicated construct running to essentially only power the incentive mechanisms yeah. underlying it. And first of all, I'm amazed that they've delivered this. Um, I'm surprised that they've invented a brand new zero knowledge proof um, system. Like this is a completely new system. I've never heard of anything like this prior. Um, and that they're able to prove proof of space time with the zero knowledge proof circuit. It's amazing that they've done it. It seems like it is far from optimized. It seems like the requirements are essentially like basically the very limit of what professional grade, like just under professional grade components. I think the parameters that they've listed are literally like the maximum that you could have with consumer grade electronics as of today like a year ago this build i don't think would have realistically been done with actual consumer grade hardware you would have to like step into um, professional grade uh, hardware in order to be able to fit 128 gigs of ram onto a single cpu and all of that is just to essentially like run the zero knowledge proof system. So most of those resources are not utilized unless you get selected in the proof of stake rounds, in which case all of a sudden you have to spin it up and you're using all 128 gigs of RAM instantly. Um, <laughs> I'm a little surprised that, that the requirements the cpu and ram requirements are so high like i feel like they would have been able to upload or offload more of the compute to the gpu like i wonder if there's more OpenCL or cuda or whatever like optimizations they can make in gpu programming yeah and um and maybe that's why the gpu requirements will actually be higher later on because they will there will be a trade-off um that's crazy though i mean in order to just to participate in a test net you have to have that kind of machine and then yeah you don't oh and there's sure there's a caution there's a caution that says do not optimize your mining rigs for this implementation they say quote there is no guarantee this testing con configuration will be suitable for filecoin storage mining at mainland launch so don't buy new hardware unless you just want to test it out on the mainnet. As in, don't start investing in mining equipment just yet. But yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm I'm trying to like figure out like, does this matter? Like, does I mean, maybe it's fine for them. You know, like if you think about 
like Bitcoin or Ethereum, which are more like trying to be like a base monetary, you know, layer for like the entire ecosystem, which, you know, of course, I think Bitcoin has miserably failed at that. And Ethereum is is still in process of, of, of pulling it off with ETH2 and whatnot. But um, it is different, requ- different design requirements. And I, you know, maybe having a bunch of these high powered machines isn't as big a deal for Filecoin. But yeah, it doesn't necessarily make me think that people are going to want, like, it's not going to have the same degree of decentralization at all, as far as I can tell. Mm-hmm. Anywhere, I mean, magnitudes away, right? Like, so. it's, um, it's also a question of, like, do does this actually properly incentivize people from retaining and holding uh, essentially the the data right like is this it does it accomplish what it needs to does it incentivize uh data storage is our retrieval times going to be uh competitive to existing solutions like aws s3 um if all of your data is client-side encrypted and you manage your own keys does it matter if it resides on someone else's hardware i don't know um that being said, like IPFS in general has been integral to most of the apps I've seen. Uh, for example, Peepith is built around IPFS. Even for something as simple as decentralized Twitter, the amount of information being stored in a full Web3 application would just be too big to run entirely on Ethereum. So Ethereum remains like the finance layer, but you still need a data storage layer. And um, IPFS has been doing a really good job in the sense that I've always had to spin up my own IPFS nodes and host it myself. Um, But does this actually introduce decentralization more than it is currently, right? So it definitely is more decentralized than me hosting it on an AWS instance. But... um, it's just crazy the lengths and like the things that they've had to invent and implement to get this to work to actually be decentralized even as decentralized as it is now like the requirements prevent me from running a testnet node i would have liked to um but at the same time it, it just gets to this point right like sometimes like eos you could scale out to a certain degree in which the requirements just become so large that you can't participate unless you literally have a massive $10,000 a month AWS budget or something comparable, right? And that's the type of thing that um, Ethereum has avoided and very consciously avoided in a lot of things. Yeah. Well, let's wish them luck. <laughs> yeah, and I'm definitely going to be following closely. Um, and I've tried to do my homework on them, and I've definitely used their software, so I'm supportive of the things that they build. I wish them the best of luck. Um, but damn, that's a crazy, powerful computer they're requiring me to have. <laughs> 
I don't think there's going to be a lot of pop and mom and pop Filecoin miners. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say I'm not going to repurpose an old computer to try to mine Filecoin. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, I think, a good place to wrap up for this week's episode. Um, is there anything else that you want as a throwback to good old 2019? Um, that we may have overlooked and not talked about yet. Um, nope. We can always talk about anything else next week. Yeah, looking forward to it. See you next week. Thanks for listening. Right. Adios. See you.